Hello. Welcome. I'm Susie. This is my podcast. In the previous two episodes, I've been talking about women and gender. Uh, In the first episode, I talked a little bit about women and their roles throughout history uh, and some a little bit about feminism um, and sort of feminist theory. Um, in the second episode, talked a little bit about, um, well, I talked a lot about the English monarchy <laughs> and the succession um, and the ascension of Elizabeth I to the throne of England and um, how her influence um, really sort of informed some of our thinking about gender, uh, beginning in the Middle Ages, uh, and then a little bit about end of the problem of marriage. And I'd like to talk a little bit more of that and on the topic of gender as a social construct. Hang out with me. It's going to be cool. problem of marriage. And the reason why I call it a problem is because until, you know, pretty recently, and still in some places in the world, marriage is really just a prison for women. It's a means of keeping them economically and intellectually subservient. It's a means of exploiting labor. You know, it's a means of expressing power over another and over a party that's been made vulnerable by a sort of doctrinal approach to thinking about women. And, and I mean doctrinal in, in the strictest sense of the term. I mean, it, it, religious text is, you know, not unclear about the problem of women in humanity. And in particular, the problem of sex and women in humanity. I mean... The idea of unchecked sex in a woman, unchecked sexuality in a woman, is almost never seen favorably. I mean, even in our current day culture, you know, rape culture is a culture that views women as problematically sexualized and in in need of checking. I'll talk about that a little bit. Kind of dark, you know, I don't love it, but, you know, sometimes you got to go there. Sometimes you got to get a little dark to see the light. I think this is one of those things. But unchecked women's sexuality it, it historically somehow represents a threat to the patriarchy, right? Like it somehow represents a threat to male domination. It speaks to a lack of control. And it speaks to a fear of the you know power, the soft power that men feel women may have over them. There's a lot of Freudian thinking about this, obviously. There's a lot of psychoanalytical thinking about it. And there's obviously a ton of feminist theories about, you know, women's sexuality and, and how it, it is a perceived threat by men. I won't get into any of that because that's just not my area. <laughs> I'm kidding. Nothing's my area. I but I'm not gonna get into it because I it doesn't um it, it doesn't really inform the focus of my conversation today, which is that, you know unchecked sexuality is a more uh, perceived threat in a system that needs to oppress. And the a patriarchal system needs to oppress by virtue of the fact that male primacy is assumed and everything else is secondary. 
Here, here's the issue. With, here, here's my problem with, with the religious thinking about that it, it, is that, you know, it, it, it assumes that uh, sex can only have value in a reproductive capacity. And, and that's dumb and something we know not to be true. I mean, in humanity, sex is not merely a reproductive act. It never has been a reproductive act. Like, you know, in it, its stilled way, of course, it's how you produce children, how you produce offspring. But it is not why we have sex. It's not the reason why we have sex. It's never been the reason why we have sex solely and exclusively. And yet religion would have us believe that it's the only valuable reason to do so. I think we all, any one of us who's actually had sex would agree that that's just poppycock. That's crazy talk. It just feels wrong in your bones, right? But it is a, that's a power structure. That's a way of controlling population. It's a way of controlling resources. It's a way of, you know, preserving power. And marriage features, you know, features prominently in that kind of architecture, um, in large part because it is a representation of religious values, the place in the home, um, you know, how women fit in, the, the, you know, their birthing of children, then by extension into a primary caregiver role, um, you know, without deference to what, you know, men can bring aside from, I don't know, bacon or something. I'm not sure. But, you know, it, it's also excludes the idea of marriage as a private contract because it's a contract with God that you're, uh, you know, avowing to observe these, you know, doctrinal practices that crystallize these uh, notions of gender role, right? So you're told how women are meant to behave in that relationship and that that relationship is in honor of, you know, of God, right? Because God said, this is, you know, how it's supposed to be. But that's not necessarily the only source of that, you know, way of thinking. It's just a way of thinking that continues to support patriarchal domination as a primary notion in general. It's not exclusive to religion, but it's best seen through, you know, the lens of religion. Now, when I talk about gender as a construct, you know, what we mean by that, again, is this idea of the roles of a gender in a given social structure, right? But that framework assumes a binary proposition. And there's a reason why that's a problem. I think that it's important that a distinction be made between the idea of biological sex, in which the physiological characteristics of a body with female reproductive organs uh, versus a body with male reproductive organs. And it's not just the organs, it's the systems, right? Like different types of hormonal hormonal balances and other um, sorts of subtleties in uh, physiology that are distinct to the reproductive modality of that physiological being. It, it is a biological sex. Then there are kind of sociological roles, right? And one is an anatomical characteristic and one is formative. So you can be born with all of the parts of a woman and all of the different sort of, you know, systemic um, balances, you know, that uh, attribute female physiology. But maybe you like rolling around in the dirt, and riding bikes and doing things that are typically considered to be boy things. See, examine that. Typically considered to be, right? We, we, don't, we know that riding a bike is not, <laughs> it's not like a, you know, a gendered 
thing, but we have over time come to codify various things through that lens. We've done it so much that we don't even realize that we do it. You know, when you think about a woman, if you're a person who grew up in like Western culture, most cultures, but Western culture in particular, you have a, an idea, you know, in your mind of what that person looks like, how they dress, how they walk, how their mannerisms, right? Their, their kinds of characteristics. We break these things down over time. And over time, I think there's a much less of a, of a need to look at people in that way, but, but it's still there. We still do it. And then when moreover, it's, it's still codified in the systems that we've chosen to rule our lives. If we don't look at them and we just carry on assuming that the formulations that we've been working with continue to be valid, well, that's foolhardy friends. The ideas of dress, mannerism, occupation, affectations, emotional behavior, right? All of these different things that we tend to point in a gendered way are not their common human expressions manifested in varying degrees by varying different people at varying points in their lives, depending on their circumstances. It's very difficult to paint people with that very broad brush. Continuously try to do it. I mean, that tells us something too. That we continuously try to do it is, I think, extremely telling, but I think knowing that we do that, knowing we have that tendency is also important in order to kind of take a beat, look back a little bit, think about how we think, why we think, the way we think. We know that the roles of women have changed dramatically. The 20th century representing probably the most, you know, tectonic period in changes in, in women. Second wave feminism you know, which came about sort of starting in the 1970s after the suffrage movement brought about the women's right to vote in 1920. And that sort of birthed an entirely new generation of women who began to challenge normal gender stereotype roles, but culminated in second wave feminism, which really started to take a critical look at the systemic ways in which women were oppressed and started to facilitate changes, changes in legislation uh, resulting in changes in representation in government bodies, resulting in policy changes, right? Bringing more equity, allowing women to have a bank account, allowing women to own a home or a car, allowing women to have sole custody of their kids. You know, second wave feminism brought a lot of that stuff about. The trouble with second wave feminism, you know, apart from it's, it's obvious and innate trouble, which is it was a resistance movement and it was, you know, really fighting back against a very deeply ingrained patriarchal system. But it was poised as a resistance movement and therefore it stands forever in an adversarial stance. So much so that it splintered into factions, you know, which is not uncommon in resistance movements. But I mean, a lot of, you know, second wave feminists attacked other women as not really representing what women ought to be. You know, and again, that's basically just part of the same fucking problem, right? You can't tell a woman how she ought to be, regardless of whether or not you think she's brainwashed or programmed or like whatever it may be. Each person, you know, comes to their lived experiences on a specific pathway. They formulate their thoughts in a specific way. And an attack on that thinking is not going to result in a person being like, tell me more, Right. Do you feel like you want to know more when somebody attacks you? I don't. So it does require a challenge, though. Why do you think that? Why, 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 
what? <laughs> Let's talk about it. Second wave feminism was, you know, like a lot of resistance movement was, you know, an, um, a movement that came out of, God damn it, just frustration and anger. And like, you've had enough of your shit, you know, so you kind of get it right. You kind of understand the more fanatical parts of those movements, really pushing back on people who they felt were keeping them from moving forward. Billish Schlafly. Uh, third wave feminism, though, coming about later in the late 2000s and kind of took the next steps and I think brought us to a better a better understanding of feminism in my view. And so far as it's grounded in a greater inclusivity, uh, it embraces intersectionality as a valid experience of feminism. So it begins to include trans experiences as valid experiences of womanhood. It begins to consider the idea of, you know, non-binary individuals as experiencing valid characteristics of womanhood and, and those characteristics being important in and of themselves, whether or not they're connected to the biological sex of that individual. I think for me, there's this sort of core truth. I see it all the time, like fractal geometry, just the same pattern repeating itself again and again and again and again just infinitely through time and space and it's just you know this mutability this chaos this constant change and fluctuation it's constantly moving it's constantly fighting and reharmonizing breaking apart coming together dancing that's the truth of our existence and that's the truth of what we are we're all of the things we're a little bit, you know, male, we're a little bit female, we're a little bit dark, we're a little bit light, a little bit angry, a little bit loving. All of these things exist in equal parts and disequal parts and asymmetrical parts, and you know, and it constantly changes and it fluctuates. So it's really, 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 really hard for me to then look at a specific you know, group of people that just happen to share a set of characteristics, whatever those characteristics may be, and say that those, all of those people exist in X and Y and Z ways. It is so reductive and a serious disservice to the complexity of human beings. You know, relative to progress of women, you know, I think it's true that we've come a long way, baby. You know, but the work isn't done. Violence against women is a big feature of a lot of these kinds of thinking. You know, rape culture exists because of this kind of thinking. Violence against women in most of its expressions manifests as a need to dominate. It manifests as a need to reassert a kind of patriarchal power. You know, whether it sounds cliche to you or not, it's just true. You know, it, it, it exists in the skepticism when victims speak out about, you know, abuse. It's a reaction, it's, you know, manufactured by patriarchal forces to maintain power through discrediting the accuser. And it's easy to do that because the accuser is just a, you know, weak-minded female. Again, that's not the way that most people are, are thinking about women these days. And yet, and yet, right, there's still that kernel. There's still that 
gut reaction that many people have of like, well, you know, what's in it for her? What's her angle? <laughs> her angle? It really? I mean, if you live through that kind of trauma, you have to do it within the dark, like behind closed doors and in a way that doesn't allow you to process that trauma properly. What kind of life is that? That, that agony, that the, the effects of that are quite damaging. You know, it, it, violence against women and, and, you know, uh, concepts of rage culture, you know, exists in the many microaggressions that serve to remind women that they're just one dark alley away from being reminded where their place is, you know, being reminded that, you know, women are, are properly manifesting themselves in the world when they're seeking protection because they can't do it for themselves. They're reliant upon that power dynamic. The reason why, you know, intuitively, a lot of people ask when a person is raped, well, what's she doing there? How much does she have to drink? What's she wearing? Fucking difference does that make? Like, none of those things are relevant. Why are we asking these questions? Let's ask a question about why we're asking those, about why that's your reaction to those questions versus, oh my God. I'm so sorry that happened to you. How could somebody have done that to you? I mean, wow. Violence against women exists in the presumption that a woman should not have agency over her own body. I, I stand by that. That's a hill I'm totally willing to die on. You know, that is a, a violent act against women to the denial of, of the right of access to abortion or any other means of contraception or, you know, a say over when they want to fuck or when they don't want to fuck. That's all in the category of violence against women because it demeans their personhood. It tells them that their needs and their rights and their, you know, their primacy in the world is not valid and it's not important. And it is certainly not equal to that of the other, the main. And the main, in the main, is still men. So that's, I think, an architecture that needs a second look. And that's not to say, you know, we all become men haters. I love men. Men are great. I love women, too. They're all great. I love everything in between. People are awesome. Some of them are assholes. Some of the time. Some of them are assholes all of the time. I even like some of those people. I like people in theory <laughs> and sometimes in practice, but I don't like the effort to try to pin people into what your idea of them, of who they ought to be is. Cause that's, that's your shit. That's not theirs. Don't put it on them. Certainly don't put it on me. So be that as it may. Women exist in the world. Their expressions exist in the world through a multitude of different expressions. Feminine expressions of existence exist in all human beings. Now, again, that distinction between biological sex and sociological roles, you know, is critical here because you can't deny that there is a dynamic there, but you also can't deny that that dynamic has been subverted by a whole multitude of, of facets and features and evolutions and technologies. 
It is no longer true that you require a womb to gestate a baby. It is no longer true that you must have, you know, both a traditionally cis male and traditionally cis female personage to create a baby. It is no longer true that you must have both a female and a male caregiver. It is not true that you need have more than one caregiver. It is not true that you need have maximum two caregivers, right? There's a, there's just an infinity of different ways that humanity manifests itself and they're all equally valid. You know, some of them are problematic. <laughs> I'd say the most problematic are the ones that tend to use those classifications to assert a certain kind of power. You know, power assertion is uh, really, you know, almost always uh, it's a it's a winning proposition, right? Like it's a it's an exercise of domination of one will over another, which is a slippery slope. And I'm not against power. But, you know, I'm not against that. I, I think power is potent. <laughs> to put too fine a point on it. Um, you know, power is is awesome. It's great, but it you know when abused, right? Power is deadly. And the abuse of power can be achieved so easily without, without us even realizing it. So here again, the act of phenomenological analysis becomes critical for us to start asking questions about why, why do we think these things? And to put those in the context of our own lived experiences as well. What made you think that way about that thing? When you have a reaction to something, right, and you kind of have a, you know, like if you ever read a news story and it's kind of a hot goss type of situation and something that the media is focused on because it has that um, sensational quality, you know, whatever it may be. And you have that reaction that where you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Why do you have that reaction? You got to wonder, right? Like, especially if it's strong, like if it's really visceral, if it's really a powerful reaction. I think it's uh, it's an interesting notion to stop and wonder why that reaction is happening and that at that degree what probe that a little bit when you come to some clearer understanding is about your own reactions to things you begin to be able to postulate about other people's reactions to things and how they might have come to that it's an interesting exercise right it, it it's like a you know a flower that like kind of blossoms it sort of keeps opening and unfolding and it's equally beautiful like you and like me So that is what I have for you this time on the topic of gender and of women. And I really enjoyed it. I felt like I, um, there was a lot of ground to cover there. And I hope you know, I don't um, claim to be any sort of expert on anything. These are just my random silly thoughts that kick around in my head that I like to share. And um, they are also filtered through my own lens and through my own perspective and through my own experiences. So. I don't claim to be, you know, the end all, but I love to understand more. And sometimes that means being challenged. So 
if there are things you've heard and you um, want to talk about it, I invite you to reach out. Um, I created an email address and I created an Instagram account. And um, I hope that you will follow me on Instagram. That's at Suzy Makes a Podcast, S-U-Z-I Makes a Podcast. Uh, or if you'd like to uh, send me a note, uh, you can send me an email at Suzy Makes a Podcast, S-U-Z-I makes a podcast at gmail.com. I hope you'll do it. I really look forward to hearing from folks about their thinking on these topics and um, to hopefully use that to explore some new ideas down the road. So with that, thank you. Until next time.